Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome. I'm Ellen Trackman. I'm an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law and here with my amazing, wonderful sister, Jennifer White. not an attorney. Not an attorney. Sorry. So few. Yay. Someone's sane here and not a terrible person. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, you can still be an amazing person and not be an attorney is all I'm saying. And <laughs> you can still be an attorney and be an amazing person. Also that too. Yeah. See, <laughs> they're accepting of all. Right. Um, well, I'm excited about today's interview. Before we start, you were sharing an embarrassing podcast related story that I want to um, make you share with make the world. Make me relay to the world. <laughs> yes. So as our world is slowly opening back up, and we also just moved this last year. So every interaction we have with people are new people, you know, because they're th- we're introducing ourselves and yay. But um, our daughter plays hockey for the high school and another parent, you know, because we have to go to practices six practices or games six days a week and it's exhausting. And another parent offered to take Katie to the game over the weekend. And it was wonderful. And, I, you know, as a good, polite human being, they pulled up in the driveway and they're very nicely wearing their masks in the car and all that stuff. And I walk out there to introduce myself and I stand six feet away and talk and, you know, great. Yay. We introduce ourselves. And I get back inside and I look down and emblazoned across my chest, this brand new person that I have just met, I say, my shirt says, I want to put a baby in you. I'm like, that? probably was not a great first impression with with pride what no um well I will say my spouse wears an I want to put a baby in you shirt frequently he used to wear to the gym back when there were gyms to go to and he did buy the phone case off our merch um what part of our website so his phone case that he brings to work, you know, as an attorney with respectable clients and such has a sperm with headphones on it, but he, he does not seem embarrassed by it. So I'm okay. I mean, I'm I'm not embarrassed. I'm just saying it might not have been the greatest first impression I've ever given out. (laughs) I I don't know. So, um, but with a much better first impression, we are really excited to talk to Andrew Lucero. Yes. Welcome, Indra Lucero, to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So I will say that I am so grateful for you. I feel like since early on when I moved to Colorado and started practicing, you've just been this amazing resource in my like professional legal life. So first, it's like a huge thank you to you. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Well, I just have to return the gratitude. I've so valued having you as a colleague and somebody who's innovating and really, you know, I felt like a kindred spirit and trying to trying to do things differently, trying to do things that people need. Oh, thank you. Oh, love fest. Um, so we love sharing stories of different families and the way they were formed. And I know you have an, an interesting story that I, I think that others would, would be able to, to learn from and feel not alone and all the things. So it's always hard, like where to start, where do you start when you tell the story of your family? Well, I definitely just, I definitely start preconception. Um, and I have to say, I think I mentioned to you, Ellen, that this feels like really good timing because our youngest just turned 18. 
Oh, wow. So it feels like an exciting time to look back mm. on the journey. And to be um, fair, that is what prompted me. Reach. We had talked about asking you before, and then I saw your awesome, hilarious, sweet Facebook post where it was like, you and your child as a baby on your lap, and then 18 years later where you can't even see you at all, yeah. like your legs are sticking Aww. out. It was like the most adorable thing. Sweet little child on my lap, and I was engulfed, basically. Yes. <laughs> I'm happy to share that for this episode. We would love that. We would love that. That'd be great. Okay. So preconception, um, were you on your own when you were thinking about having a kid? Were you with someone else? Where, where were you? Yeah. I mean, I guess we even have to go way back. back. I was, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I guess, especially as a queer person, I became a parent somewhat young, you know, I, I, I think, in general, people are having kids later, but it's partly because I was with my first girlfriend. We got together when we were 18, freshmen in college. And so, you know, by the time that we were starting to think about getting pregnant, we'd already been together. Um, I think it was five six seven years wow so and to go back even further do you want to share about your identity and that kind of realization and how that evolved well yeah I guess I should even just you <laughs> way back to the okay this is a podcast <laughs> I have yes. to right. keep I am. Yes. um well I identify as queer and genderqueer and I've really always identified as queer and I, I use that term because it allows for, it's a little more dynamic or responsive to a dynamic gender. I never really identified with the term lesbian because it, it, it suggests a, a binary gender basically. And I, I never really felt that my own gender was you know, binary. And I definitely never felt like the people that I was attracted to only fit in one gender category. So, and then also queer, I think has sort of a political layer to it. I, I am very deliberate about my outsider, the outsider qualities of being queer and the insight that that gives me. And so I'm intentional about that and and both what that means to me, how it informs my life kind of on a soul level, but then also how I can inform the world. So. Well, I have to say I was the very, thank you for sharing that. I have to say I was the, I, the first time I ever saw someone with a signature line where you have MX, Andrew Lucero, that was the first time I ever saw that. Yes. Yes. I, you know, for a long time, I think many of us have tried to figure out just the language piece, like what are, what words do we use? And it's also really empowering to find words that fit. And MX was one of those. It feels right. Um, so I kind of knew I was queer in high school, but you know, it's a, it's a particular thing, the sort of self delusion that can go on. Um, but pretty much as soon as this 
young woman, you know, responded to me in a way that was open to, uh, you know, a queer sexuality, it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this has been clarified for me. It is a totally <laughs> clear now. Yeah. Um, so you guys met in high school and then were together for many years. Met in college. Just, oh, college, like, college. You know, like <clears throat> week three. <laughs> oh, wow. Nice. We were in the same dorm. I remember celebrating her 18th birthday with her. Wow. So, um, you know, and this is a particular moment for, you know, in queer history. Actually, for those who are Coloradans, too, this is 1992. It was the year that Colorado passed this really big anti-gay initiative that led to people even boycotting Colorado. And 92 is also in this particular relationship with the AIDS crisis. Um, we weren't, you know, I wasn't quite young enough to where I was experiencing my peers dying, but I definitely was of the age that the context of AIDS was, was the context of being queer. So that's, you know, <laughs> nonetheless, I think partly because of that and because of the incredible activism of, of AIDS activists, the 90s, coming out in the 90s as a queer per person felt like there was a lot of possibility. It didn't necessarily feel like I was limited. I could, I could fight to be a part of the world, um, a part of mainstream life in, in a way. And so actually having a family felt very much part of that. It felt like a way of asserting queerness in the world that was radical it was something that we could dream of, and it was very much a thing that that we started dreaming of very early on. So the and story that was going to be the question is: Did you? Yeah. So did you start from the very like when you met, or very early in your relationship? How much did you talk about family from that having a family together from that early point? Very early. So Allison and I met that you know <laughs> week three or whatever, and then by early in the second semester, we met Jeffrey. And <laughs> Jeffrey, who would become the father of our children. Yeah. Wow. And did you tell I, him that when you met him? Like, you will be. <laughs> you are going to be the father of our children. <laughs> I'm not quite in those terms, but pretty, <laughs> I can't remember exactly when, but we, we then became the queer organizers on campus. And we were you know, planning all these events. We were the leaders of the, you know, the queer group. And one of the things that we planned was a little panel session with a queer family. So definitely was, it was part of the conversations very early on. And the queer family that we had come talk was a multi-parent family. So I believe it was two women and one man. So we did not feel like there had to be any limitations. You know, we, I certainly felt like we could make this up. We could design anything. And the, the frontier of family formation felt like a beautiful queer, you know, frontier of open possibilities. Wow. 
And you're not at law school yet. Are you thinking about law school? Are you worried about the legal kind of structure of family? Well, I definitely was not in law school or thinking <laughs> about law school at this time. But my, I have lawyers in my family. <laughs> so it's always, I think, been something that I'm curious about and interested in. And it was at that time. And that was the folks, I believe, who were on this panel. I went to college in the Northwest. And I think they maybe were from Oregon. And there definitely was part of the conversation was, what are the legal options? Um, yeah. Are you all recognized as legal parents? What does that mean? Um, and of course, we have to remember the context here is that queer people could not, you know, be in same-sex marriages. Yeah. So, of course, all, you know, and again, my personal coming out context was the context of this law that was actually went up to the Supreme Court and by the time I graduated, it was found to be unconstitutional at the federal level. Yeah. Yay. So laws were very much a part of the curiosity. Wow. And you mentioned having attorneys in your family. How is your family through all of this? Have they been supportive? I had a very, very supportive family. And I even... Even before I came out to them, I knew that it was going to be okay. I just still felt scared. But sure enough, they were as as great as I expected because they had made it clear, actually. I had a cousin that I wasn't close to, maybe a second cousin, really, who had died of AIDS. And when that happened, my parents you know, made a point of telling all of us kids, and I'm the oldest of four, if, you know, they just said explicitly, if any of you are gay, we, we want you to know you can tell us. Wow. And it's okay great. and we'll still love you. So I really Aww. had as... That's nice. They preemptively they just right. gave a message. Very clear message. Okay. So you were in college. Um, you were organizing. You were having a panel of, of um, queer families. And where did you go from there? We all graduated. Jeffrey went off literally to Germany, I believe he was on a fellowship. Um, and Allison and I remained together, moved back to Colorado. And certainly a defining moment in the family formation process was when Jeffrey sent us a postcard. And the postcard had an image of a, of a house, basically, and he had written on it, mom's side and dad's side. And kind of it became sort of the the representation of the dream and the vision and so we definitely you know kept the dream alive but again Allison and I are partnered and Jeffrey's not and Jeffrey's out of the country so his timing and rhythm of family formation was just really different from ours which we were empathetic to but were increasingly, you know, oh, urgent. Wow. <laughs> right, you don't want to wait. Yeah, I get it. When you, when, you know, when people, yeah, family, you want to start it when it's time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it came, he, he came back to the States. He was in a graduate program in California and we were like, okay, it's time. Like we, you know, it's time. 
And we were kind of worried because we didn't know if it would be the right time. And here, by this point, we'd had this dream together for a long time and didn't, you know, we all were anxious about it. We, we got together over Labor Day weekend and, you know, with the intention of this is the talk. This is, you know, when it gets real. <laughs> wow. Um, and we were all scared and nervous because he was worried that, you know, we wouldn't maybe, I can't remember what his worries are. Maybe he was even worried that we wouldn't be flexible with his schedule. I don't know. Or maybe he just knew that we were going to be anxious and he was going to give us good news because that's <laughs> what happened. Wow. Pretty much as soon as we got together that yeah. weekend, we were like, so are you, are you in? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's then what we spent the weekend talking about. Um, the big question was this vision that, that we've been talking about. Can we, can we start making it real now? And so he was like, yeah, let's start well. making it real now. <laughs> and then what does yeah. that mean? What are we talking about? Um, and, you know, like I said, to me, it really felt like family fe formation as queer folks was this big open universe of possibilities. Like, what does it even mean to be a parent? I remember specifically because he was in California at the time we talked about, he had anxieties about being a dad, but being in California and it was like, but you could be a dad and that's how it looks. It looked just have different meaning than, you know, we've come to associate with that word, but we can define what it is. So definitely we did want him to be a dad. And as we started to, and what was at this in? point, what was the, what you was know, the plan? make things more real, we consulted yeah. with some lawyers and the advice that we were given at the time was, well, he can't be a dad. You, that's the only way you can do this is if he, you know, mm -hmm. disclaims his parentage. And mm -hmm. we were unsatisfied with that answer. Yeah. <laughs> and so? So, in a way, <laughs> it just it anyway. reinforced that sense of being off in the wilderness alone. Because, <laughs> mm. of course, these were the LGBTQ lawyers that we consulted with, too. We weren't being told this from mainstream lawyers these were yeah. the ones that we thought would be friendly but no even amongst even amongst those lawyers of the day it was just no you can't do this and we're like well we're gonna do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so that's where i i feel so grateful to my dad who is an attorney and had a general practice the kind of practice that you you hardly even see nowadays he did a lot of a lot of things, but he certainly did some family law. So he was like, I mean, parents make agreements all the time about how they're going to arrange this thing called parenting. And so there's a million ways you can arrange it. Just, just write it down how you want to arrange it. Think through these pieces. I know now that essentially he, you know, he gave us a template of things to think through like you would with an allocation of parental responsibilities. 
So we made a contract. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just sort of broke down these key ingredients of expect expectations from each other. And he, he also gave really good advice, which was the legal system was not built for you, for this kind of family. So avoid yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> but he thought it was still a good idea to have a contract in place, even knowing that the legal system was unlikely to support it. You know, I haven't talked to him since then. And now that I'm a lawyer, it would be fun to kind of to ask him, <laughs> what were you thinking? How did that feel? Yeah. Did you, how crazy did you think this was? But he did not convey at all. He did not give us any kind of risk message. He just mm. was trying to be, you know, strategic and supportive. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. And can you tell us what that contract looked like generally? Yeah. Essentially, how we wrote it was we were three people forming a family and we all had a third responsibility and a third of the, you know, duties and time. And, you know, so we, we designed it as this is the base level. And of course the value of creating a, a document like that is you have to think through a lot of things that might not even be fun to think through, but we definitely, we took it as <laughs> worst case scenario. <laughs> what would, you know, be our bottom line. And our bottom line was just this sort of equality approach. Our bottom line is that we each carry our, our weight. We each, you know, do a third of the stuff, pay a third of the stuff, and we get at least a third of the time. Well, there's, but there's a, there's an exciting twist. <laughs> good. Any good story has a twist. So with this, with this contract, we dive in and start to figure out actually how to get pregnant. Um, and of course, that's another place where we ran into some barriers. You know, we consulted with medical providers about insemination, you know, within a clinic. And we're just told we only do that for married people. Uh. And, you know, nobody in this group was married. <laughs> Um, Allison and I couldn't be married and no, you know, we did not want to be married to Jeffrey. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry, Jeffrey. Like we like no. you yeah. fine. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> he did not want to be married to us either, to be fair. So, um, it just, it definitely, again, it was that message of like, you're outside. These systems are not for you. You're not going to find anybody helpful. So. Well, you know, okay. You know what? We don't need anybody's help. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Yeah, okay, then. <laughs> so, yeah, we decided to use what was fondly referred to at the time as the turkey turkey mm -hmm. baster method. Mm -hmm. um, did not actually use a, a turkey baster. I was tempted <laughs> to ask. I know there's, like, actual products these days that you can buy that are essentially turkey baster method, but supposed to be better. Oh, interesting yeah. mm -hmm. so yeah, we just used a syringe yeah good old, good old syringe jeffrey likes to talk about how it was a yogurt container <laughs> that received the deposit that he made was it yep 
Um, so actually for our, for our first, we tried a couple times. We also had this geographic challenge because he was in California, California. California. Yeah. California. Yes. Um, Oh, I think we still have a copy of the chart that we made of Allison's cycle. Because, you know, we were tr- trying to buy plane tickets and yeah. time it all out. Two attempts. It, not, it hadn't worked yet, you know, and the discouragement that comes with that and the feelings of inadequacy and hmm. hard feelings. Yeah. So this next opportunity to inseminate came Aww. up and I couldn't I couldn't travel at that particular date, but we wanted to seize the opportunity, so Allison went out to California. Hmm. And this was the time that it worked. Um, now it's real. <laughs> I was on the phone <laughs> when when the insemination yes, kind yes, of. Yeah. I was there kind of. Um I know that they had had one of Jeffrey's friends did sort of a moonlight ritual on the beach that we feel was particularly helpful. Yeah. But um, that that's what did it. Boom. Yeah. Now we're now we're pregnant. Yeah. Yay. So cool and exciting. Um, and there we are. So during the pregnancy we were all living in this, you know, three parent mode and definitely this, what does, what does the idea of dad mean when mm-hmm. he's in another state? And we're kind of like just living into the question of it. But our, our expectation is that primary residence for baby will be me and Allison. Mm-hmm. And we'll kind of just figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think Jeffrey came, I'm pretty sure he came for the ultrasound. You know, he was very involved. I remember when his mom called us when we found out we were pregnant. It was utterly adorable. She was thrilled and delighted and Yay. so welcoming and like excited yeah. to be grandma. That's awesome. Um, but basically what happened is once the baby was born, Jeffrey, of course, came out and that was planned to the extent that you can plan a plane ticket around a birth. <laughs> baby. Yeah. Baby. Right. Babies come when babies want to come. Yeah. yeah. Was he there for the birth? That's very hard to plan. Yeah. No. Mm. Um, but he, he got here very soon. Maybe then, you know, within, certainly within 48 hours, I think. Um, and of course he was smitten mm-hmm. and I think it might've been that visit or maybe it was once he got back home, he was like, I think I'll move to Colorado. Yeah. Um, so he was here within a couple months. Wow. I'm pretty, so Zian, our oldest was born in April. He was definitely here by June. That's amazing. <laughs> So, yeah, it was very, I mean, I just remember the feeling of it, you know, like, okay, I, you know, we had one picture of how things would go and it quickly was like, what are we going to, what does it mean then with dad in town? 
Yeah. Yeah. And did you have the house at that point that you envisioned of you guys on one side and him on the other? Well, not, not yet because we couldn't, (laughs) he moved pretty quickly. Definitely. We did not, (laughs) we weren't prepared for that. Um, and so for, yeah. So just in those, er, you know, pretty early postpartum days, it's like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we doing this? And breastfeeding and co-parenting and yeah yeah. so (laughs) really just sort of building building the plane as we flew it yeah and then the other variable is within a couple months of jeffrey being here he got a boyfriend (laughs) (laughs) nice um which of course was always a possibility it was Mm -hmm. it was a contemplated possibility um, but I have to say, I didn't think it would happen quite so fast, <laughs> especially, you know, at, at that time, being a gay man who was a father was not, it wasn't clear what that would mean to dating prospects. Right. I mean, being a parent in general to anyone trying to date is, uh, is a yeah. fascinating and difficult proposition. Yeah. But sure enough. So I, you know, it was before Zian was even one that he started referring to Jeffrey's boyfriend as Poppy. Mm. So this was, of course, you know, outside the contemplation of the contract. That was not the contract, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> Amendment. Exactly, exactly. So, in fact, we did amend the contract. Oh, nice. Um, Probably we amended it when we started planning for baby number two, um, which was the baby I gestated. And that definitely was the plan. You know, when we first concocted the plan with Jeffrey, there were two, you know, at least two pregnancies planned. Yeah. Um, And it was deliberate that Allison would go first and I would go second. So. I was pretty, I was pretty excited. I was chomping at the bit, especially because <laughs> I was not postpartum. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that looked easy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we, pro- we probably started talking about it. Let's see. Yeah. I think we, we started talking about it shortly after Zane turned one. So contract revised and it really was just revised to add a fourth person. So we just turned it into quarters, mm-hmm. um, which then also made for efficient halves. <laughs> right. Um, and at that time, too, we considered, oh, gosh, to, whose sperm should we use? Mm. Yeah, I was wondering um, about that part, too. It definitely was an open question. But again, this is pretty soon in our knowing this person, like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, it's one thing to be the person falling in love with somebody. And it's, it's another person to be outside of that and kind of in a new intimacy with a new person that you know, yeah. you're not in love with. Right. So it's somewhat, I mean, for lack of a better word, kind of thrust on you, right? You know, yeah. not, it, you didn't go out and choose this person. Right, right. So we all decided we're just, we're going to go with Jeffrey's sperm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah, for, for a lot of, I think we all felt fine with that decision. Um, and so sure enough, that's what we did. And of course the logistics were just easier because we're in the same town at this Mm -hmm. point, still not in the, the postcard house, but, um, but you're farther from a beach for a moonlight beach ceremony. I know there was no ceremony this time. And I got pregnant pretty easily. So it turns out we didn't, we didn't even need the beach. beach. (laughs) Uh, Maybe it took two times, I think. Yeah. Um, so, and actually at this point too, we actually had three households because Jeffrey and Mark weren't oh. living together yet. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. When did it happen? So we started to, to close in on the, the dream postcard house because we were, Alice and I were living in a triplex and one of the units became available. Oh, wow. Ooh. So, and actually it became available to purchase. We owned the one unit we were in and the owner, it was the same owner that we bought from. So Mm. the owner came to us before even putting it on the market. Holy cow. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So we scooped up that opportunity and there's, so there's Jeffrey right next door. So we had... Many months of experiencing um, transporting a baby across town for parenting time, you know, and it became clear that, yeah, the postcard vision would be easier. Yeah. (laughs) So we're honing in on the postcard vision, but then Jeffrey's partner lives in his own house. (laughs) He actually moves, you know, his sort of step into the relationship was moving across town to be in the same neighborhood. (laughs) so the insemination happens when he's in the same neighborhood and it actually i mean i vividly remember just taking the three minute drive picking up the yogurt cup oh still yogurt yogurt. (laughs) and uh then just driving back home and basically just inseminated myself without much pomp or circumstance really well yeah (laughs) Which was funny, but cool and weird and amazing. <laughs> yeah. Was Alice in there? Um, I'm Maybe sorry. I'm sorry, <laughs> Allison. I don't, <laughs> I don't oh, no. totally remember. <laughs> um, because what I remembered was the remarkable mundaneness of it. Mm, right. <laughs> I'm sure that she was, you know, very, very involved. Uh, but I specifically just have this memory of sitting there alone just being like gosh Hmm. I just you know squirted some semen into my (laughs) vagina wow might have a baby now (laughs) let's see how this goes (laughs) and it worked yes so then our youngest was born born at home actually oh wow um so, you know, Zian got to be there to the extent that he wanted to, which wasn't a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't like a kiddie pool for him to play in, yeah. a.k.a. birth pool. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was definitely not welcomed into the birth pool. <laughs> no, thank you. Super active toddler. Right. right. That wasn't the vibe. <laughs> but it was really perfect. Our 
verging onto the postcard vision living arrangements because I was basically birthing on the one, you know, in the one unit and family was gathered in Jeffrey's unit. That's where toddler energy was. And that was kind of like the staging zone. And I could be in the deep birthing zone. Yeah. And then it's just been, you know, a journey of figuring out how to parent. We did, let's see, I think it was. Then within a year after Elliot being born, we finally searched for and found the postcard, the postcard vision. Oh, wow. Bought a duplex. Actually had, it was a, it was a new new house had the contractor who built it put in a door between the two units on the inside wow had him poke a hole in a wall that he just built but (laughs) um so it could be a really fluid kind of experience for the kids Mm -hmm. and the adults could have separate separate spaces and do the kids have the, they just have their own room or a room and it wasn't like they're moving back and right. forth, right? Yeah. So it was more like um they're just living in one big house and they're just, you know, somebody's they know who's cooking them dinner that night or they know who's getting <laughs> them ready for school the next morning. Yeah. I, I mean, were and, there ever issues like and I again as I'm a parent of a teenager right now, you know, like of the and I'm just going to call it in the insubordination of kids. It basically like, I'm going to go hide on, on dad's <laughs> side of the house. Like, did you, and I mean, obviously that's putting it onto the kids, but how did you deal with issues that might arise that are similar to that of the, you don't want to invade each other's privacy, but also yeah. you do have to deal with the parenting issues of things. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I, still kind of have heart pangs from those times where especially the little the little babies were like okay it's it's dad time now Mm. and they would cry because they wanted to be with us yeah um yeah I still feel I still feel that in my heart but you know we were all very committed to the vision and I knew that it was a long-term investment in this relationship like Mm -hmm. it actually mattered today that the baby (laughs) develop a relationship with these caretakers I couldn't you know it's not something I could wait until they were comfortable with it or whatever wanted to do it I you know we really had to create it so we all just we all really honored the the boundaries that the vision required In terms of birth certificates and going to school and filling out forms that were not um, in not, thinking not of design. parent families, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. How did how did those look? Yeah. Well, we had we had heard that there were some jurisdictions where you could get recognition of legal parentage of more than two. But we knew that Colorado was not among them. So we pretty much were, you know, accepted the fact that what was true 
in the paperwork would be different than what was true in terms of everybody's lived experience. Mm -hmm. Um, so we accepted two slots on the birth certificate and we did, especially at this time, again, still no same sex legal marriage. So Mm -hmm. there, there wasn't a good mechanism for getting the non-biological parent on the birth certificate. So we just went with biological. Yeah. And And how did you choose name? That last name, that was, that was a big conversation. I think it took place in that um, Labor Day weekend. (laughs) Good that it was like way planned in advance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That one was, that was set pretty early on. Um, The kids have my last name and I think it came down to, I was really passionate about it. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I was wondering how you, how you got that in and maybe they have silly last names. I don't know. You know, (laughs) they, I think they both just kind of were like, yeah, it's my last name, but like, I don't know. You seemed, you seem like super passionate and I don't feel that way. Um, I know Jeffrey had some pangs after the decision was made when, Mm. you know, really when his dad was kind of like, well, gosh, our, our family Family name. name. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, it's fascinating the way you make decisions and then you see what it's like 20 years later. Um, yeah, I think, I think I would be less strident now. (laughs) Interesting. I still love my last name and I love that they share my last name, but I, I think I, I empathize more with the long-termness of it. <laughs> like, especially we were 20, we were 20 somethings. Yeah. Did the kids ever later say like, Oh, I wish it was hyphenated or I wish it was different. No, I've not heard any complaints about the last name, but, but other things, <laughs> well, <laughs> vegetables. <laughs> yes. But, um, part of, part of for me, was important about my last name is my Hispanic heritage. And in my, there were Luceros in my lineage who were kind of, they weren't born Luceros, but they were accepted as Luceros and they were called Luceros. And I thought that that story really resonated for our family formation, that the name Lucero could, was that kind of name. (laughs) Um, but my oldest, who, you know, is not my biological child, doesn't identify as Hispanic, definitely has a different relationship to that. To I mean, you know, it's a fuzzy thing, even just being Hispanic, white Hispanic, no less, is a sort of, it's a sort of contested identity territory that is not unlike the contested identity territory of being queer or being genderqueer. Um, so I, in a way I feel like he has a last name that, that puts him in this, I don't know, complicated position relationship to heritage that just our youngest feels a little different about. (laughs) Again, no explicit complaints, but just, you know, we we asked them about their racial and ethnic identity and they have different answers. 
Yeah. So 18 plus years of raising children in this environment, what were the the biggest challenges or hurdles? Oh, and you asked about forms and things too in school. Yeah, yeah, like school, yes. You know, well, I guess we were really deliberate about the fact that forming a family like this, we're going to be best off being best served in an urban area. So that was a conscious decision. And I do think it was accurate. You know, we were better served in this particular window of time raising kids than we would have in a more rural part of Colorado um, Mm. because we had no problems with schools. They easily figured it out. Like whatever they had to do on their end, writing notes or creating extra lines on the forms. Yeah. We, they always were very accepting, like, okay. That's, that's so good to hear. And did you go in, like introduce, like, this is our family. You should know this. Yeah. Yeah. So we also were very proactive in that sense, but I mean, you know, I guess we all also just figured out our strategies for how we would approach forms and we would, approach forms with like, no, really we're for parents. So even if there is only, you know, one slot for phone numbers, we are going to just, you know, write (laughs) on the sides and in the margins. Write really small. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I'd say it wasn't those external systems that were a challenge, at least not for us. You know, also I have to say, So many people that we encountered, other parents, people on the playgrounds, when we told them the arrangement, everybody loved it. You know, Mm. certainly heterosexual married parents loved the idea of more help. Right? (laughs) (laughs) They were jealous of it. (laughs) You know, many, many people just automatically see the benefit of more than two parents um, and certainly the, the house arrangement, other families yeah. who had blended families or were divorced were, would say things like, oh, my kids wish we could do that. And so a lot of actually positive affirmation and encouragement. I think, I think the kids journey was a little different. They, they did go to a bilingual dual language, Spanish, English, Catholic elementary school. So I think they got some more normative, heteronormative kinds of messages that they then just sort of negotiated in the Mm. way kids do. Yeah. Did they come back to you with questions or struggling with those? Basically, their main reports were just that they had to answer the same questions over and over. Yeah. A big one being, who's your real mom? Yeah. Um, and how how would they answer? You know, I think they both sort of evolved how they would answer. Neither of them really liked the idea of real. Mm-hmm. But they definitely had the language of who gave birth to them. Got it. And who their biological dad was. Yeah. So they used that language to help p- people have some things to make sense of. 
<laughs> Got it. So how did that evolve into, I mean, obviously what you do now, you went to, we, we, we started talking about law school earlier, but when in this process did you go to law school and your focus shift towards, towards, and I'm not going to give away what you do, I'll let you talk about it, but, but when did, how did that evolve for you? Yeah, actually that, that is a good point. Um, so I gave birth in 2003 and by 2005 I I I took the the LSAT in 2005 so it was pretty pretty early little kids and it was definitely the experience of giving birth at home that catapulted me okay because I was so curious about the the rules, the rules that pertained to the midwives that we had, why were they that way? And also, you know, I knew that less than 2% of people have the kind of birth experience that I have statistically. Yeah. And I, I was just like, why? <laughs> were there certain rules that stood out to you? Yeah, because my midwives would tell me some things like the biggest, the biggest thing that I remember was it was outside the rules for home birth midwives to suture a tear, a oh. perennial tear parent. Yeah. Is that the word? Anyway, uh, perineal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was perfectly healthy. They were trained to do it. It seemed not only illogical, but impractical to what I didn't even know who I would go see for this suturing if, (laughs) if they didn't do it. Right. So that was a big one. There was also, you know, while I am delivering the placenta, I see that they're looking at the clock. Oh, and there's this sense. And sure enough in their, in the law that, regulates these midwives there are time parameters for how long you can be in this stage um before you have to be transported oh wow i was just like i mean i felt completely healthy and well you know but i apparently was pushing that time limit (laughs) oh so those things were just like what wow what is going on (laughs) Right. Um, and that became my fascination. So I do, I specialize in childbirth and the law. That's, um, which of course is not a specialty that you can go to school for. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, when you went to law school, did you announce I would like to take the childbirth law classes? <laughs> right. And there were none. So it definitely was a self-created curriculum, but has involved you know, just learning about all these interesting pieces and specialties in the law, certainly including alternative reproductive technology, family law, parentage, you know, all of those mm. things that were directly and personally relevant. And I have to say, in terms of that legal piece, part of why our youngest turning 18 feels like such a relief and such a triumph is that that conflict between the parentage on paper for my kids and the parentage as they, as they live it 
yeah. is essentially resolved because they're adults now. Right. Did did you ever see it come and come to a head or have a significant conflict? I would say pr- basically no, but Allison and I did break up, so we changed that relationship, and that was kind of that was a scary moment. I would say I felt mm. I felt aware of the vulnerability, right? That I think other people you know, in like a two parents scenario, wouldn't even think to feel vulnerable in that moment. But nobody ever, nobody ever threatened anything crazy. But actually Mm -hmm. one of the first cases that I took on once I got licensed was a parentage case in a lesbian couple where they had adopted internationally and, be- and only one person was all exactly the exactly yeah. they had you know c- collaboratively decided parent a will just put you kind of like we did like you know parent a will put you on the birth certificate yeah. but then when conflict ensued parent a was like yeah i you never were meant to be a parent you're not a parent you can't prove that you're a parent yeah wow how did the case turn out we won congrats congrats that's great and how old were the kids in your case when you and allison split up um seven and nine so right there smack dab in the the heart of childhood (laughs) yeah and the house i mean you had this perfect house setting so how did that work yeah and actually because of its perfectness we really maintained that structure. So I didn't move out of that house until eight years later. Wow. Yeah. So essentially the kids really, their childhood as a family unit taking place in that house was really complete. I then moved out when, yeah, our oldest was a senior in high school and our youngest was a sophomore. Was this just three years ago? Yeah. <laughs> COVID distorts all sense um, of time right now. <laughs> totally. It feels like yeah. 15 right? years ago, but that yeah. can't be right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I had a girlfriend for a time who lived down the block, which mm-hmm. was lovely. And then... My current spouse, you know, would come and live in the house during our parenting time. And then we would live in her apartment on the dad's time. Um, And so really, actually, we had the same parenting schedule as was developed when the kids were babies all the way until 2018. That's amazing. So even when you and Allison split up, you still had the half versus dividing the half into fours? Exactly. (laughs) And partly because a fourth of time feels way less than a half. And it was just very worth it to me, to her. And, you know, we had the kind of breakup and the kind of relationship where that was possible. It sounds like it, that you, everyone was very mature about everything. Yeah, yeah. It really, 
yeah, I, we were so in, invested in the in this parenting frontier because we yeah. had a, you know, it's like if you build your own house. It's really, <laughs> really different than if you're a renter or if you even just buy a house that somebody else made. I mean, it's just deep, deep investment. Yeah. And do you feel like you can declare victory now? I'm going to call it. Yes. Yes. I think so. Victory. Um, and it seems like your kids are amazing. I mean, any feedback from them of growing up in this that you've, you've understood or received from them and growing up in this structure? Well, you know, I think what's exciting about this moment of parenting is just knowing that they're actually at the beginning of that process of even having a vantage point on their childhood and their, how they were raised, you know? So Mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying this parenting moment and looking forward forward to their continued, um, you know, realizations and considerations there. There was a moment where, Zian was kind of in a teenagery way. He was kind of like, "Well, you're not even my mom." Yeah. Not quite. Like it was just teenagery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and I I don't know exactly what that was about for him. But definitely in his more, you know, in his 20s, he's <laughs> That's clearly not it. He's like, I get mm-hmm. it. I get it. You're a parent. But I, I would say he is a little more grappling with the weirdness. And and to some yeah. extent, to be fair, we just have kind of referred to him as like the Alex P. Keaton of the family. <laughs> for those of I you totally who get, get the it. 80s show references. <laughs> and for those who don't, do you want to try to expand? <laughs> well... In this television family, show, Family Ties was it called? Yep. Family, t- Family Ties. It was this pretty casual, liberal, laid-back family, and they had this son who was totally the buttoned-up yep. conservative. <laughs> and you know, the reality is, is that Zian is a straight man among many queers. <laughs> um, his brother came out when he was eleven. So I think that just sort of added to this, like, where the hell am I? (laughs) Especially in his teenage years, you know, like, these people. (laughs) You weren't like, what? You're attracted to who? (laughs) We were very supportive. We taught you better. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, so... Elliot, I think it's it's been fun. I would say both of them, you know, wrote about to some extent their family context in their college application essays. Yeah, it's a, a good topic. Yeah, Zian wrote about just the experience of having gay parents and being a straight person, which you know put him in the position to be to be educating and to be an ally in yeah. a lot of con contexts. He's yeah. a football player. So he did a lot oh, of wow. educating of football players. Yeah. And Elliot's definitely, you know, in contrast has that experience of just like, woo, 
we're here. We're queer. Get used to it. And welcome to the party. In fact, I'm going to notch up the fabulousness on this party. You guys thought you were yeah. queer, but let me show you a thing or two. <laughs> I love it. You know? oh my God. <laughs> I love that. That's so amazing. Um, well, your story is so incredible, and I love that you're willing to open up and share about your family. I think it probably like the presentation you had in college, this can be very Absolutely. helpful to others who might be thinking about their path forward. So we, we appreciate it. And we feel like it's such a, a beautiful story. It is a pleasure to share. And, you know, in terms of folks who are listening and dreaming, thinking about the possibilities, I, I would reflect, and I'd be curious what you think about this, Ellen, but in these 20 years, there has been the creation of more structure to define different pathways to parenthood. But one downside of that is that I think, I think in a way it's narrowed the, the range that people imagine for themselves. Like because queer people can get, you know, same-sex couples on birth certificates and they can get married. They, they have these access points to formal structures. There's a little less willingness to go outside of formal structures. I think one of the triumphs of our experience is that it demonstrates that you can, you can find, you can do it. You can do it creative. You can do it in the way that people tell you you can't, um, and that there are some strategies for doing that. You know, certainly prioritizing trust, prioritizing everyone's commitment to the vision can, you know, and like my dad's advice, if the system wasn't made for you, stay, stay away and find your path. I mean, yes, it comes with risks. And I mean, my, my thoughts are that, you know, you have such a beautiful family and an amazing story, but when I hear it too, I also do feel a little bit of like, you got lucky. Like if there had been a big conflict that, there would have been, there could have been some serious issues of, you know, um, Mark having right. no rights at all, right? Or, right. you know, splitting the kids between who has legal rights to them. And that could have been really ugly and unfortunate and scary. And so I'm so grateful that right. you made it to 18 with no <laughs> yeah. issues. So yeah. I definitely admire that you guys did think out of the box, but at the same time as an attorney, I'm like, oh, there's some, I know. there's some serious risk there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I bring to my work is yeah. the just the lived experience of having taken risks. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I know the fear, I know the vulnerability in my body. Yeah. Uh, and I think, of course, those of us in these professions where our job is to consider and contemplate and plan for and anticipate risk, um, we, we hear a lot of the worst case scenarios. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I just at least want to balance. Right. The, the there are reality. other stories or yeah, other right. outcomes too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Those worst case scenarios are there and we should be aware of them. We should look them square in the eyes, yeah. but they don't all go that way. Absolutely. And I'm so glad yours went a most amazing way. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Me too. 
Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this podcast and reaching so many people on their journeys. Thank you to Indra for sharing your family's story. Any of you who want to reach out to us, I mean, we may not be a great resource or info. I, you know, I, I don't know how useful we are, we but, oh, but through other people, but right. Um, we can at least refer to other people, which we do that quite often. Uh, if you want to give us a call at 303-997-1903, we love to hear from people. Uh, you can also reach out through the website. I believe you can send us an email link through there. We we really do actually, it, it is hugely amusing to us when we get to hear from people and we really do love to connect with people who, who reach out. So so please do, don't, don't feel like you're bothering us. We like it. Um, as always, a huge thank you to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, and to Chris at Work at Bird Studio. And of course, thank you to you for coming and listening to us once again. 